Hello, 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 and welcome to episode seven, episode seven of the Platform Enterprise podcast, the show that platforms the projects and visions of enterprising people all over the world who are working hard to make their impact a positive one. I'm your host, Rachel Donald, founder of this podcast and the Platform Enterprise newsletter, which reports on underreported stories that deserve traction and attention. Inspired by the interviews on this show, each story is an attempt to connect the financial, social and environmental crises we all face. Go to stories.platformenterprise.com to learn more. This podcast is all about making knowledge renewable, and that's why I'm delighted to introduce you all to Andres Yara. Andres is the founder of Roots Rice and Beans and one of the founding members of Stads Grundtubur in Amsterdam. Stads Grundtubur is a farm founded on the principles of community and regenerative agriculture. Andres is all about finding better ways to feed the world, bringing people together and innovating circularity. This was a brilliant discussion, ranging from improving our culture's relationship with the soil to the science that has allowed the farmers at Stade Grundtubur to grow over 80 types of vegetables on just 4 kilometers squared. You can find links to both Stade Grundtubur and Roots, Rice and Beans in the show notes and I urge you to check out both of these projects, especially if you're living in the Netherlands. Andres, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show and learn more about the the projects that you're doing here in the Netherlands. Oh, Rachel, thank you for the, the invitation. I'm really glad to be here. So you're from Colombia originally, and you've ended up here in Amsterdam. Can you tell me more about the journey from how, I mean, where you've been and what you've done? Uh, well, sure. Uh, I'm from Cor- Cartagena, Colombia, so it's a city in the Caribbean. Wow. <laughs> uh, then, well, I, for circumstances in life, I move around in Colombia a lot because of my mom's uh, work. Uh, and then end up in the capital in which I study um, to become a cook. So I studied there. Uh, then afterwards, I decided to specialize in, the, um, in cooking. So I went to Peru. I went to Le Cordon Bleu, in which I studied and I did my master uh, cuisine in French cuisine, Peruvian cuisine. And then I did uh, um, specialization in seafood and fish of the Pacific Ocean. Wow. <laughs> Then I went to Argentina to uh, to study about, you know, making asados and learning a little bit more about wine. Then I went back to Colombia, uh, set up my catering business. And then, the, um, well, while working and seeing, I found uh, slow food. And then I saw that slow food had uh, was really close to the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Piedmont, Italy. And then, well, I just decided to do my application and uh, I fall in love with the pencil. And uh, within 10 minutes, I did my application. And then three weeks after, I got accepted. Oh, amazing. Then I moved to Italy, in which I studied uh, for three and a half years, uh, gastronomic sciences. So this is it's not just to be... A, uh, a chef. It's actually the whole story of gastronomy, from chemistry, microbiology, sensorial sensorial, sensorial analysis of taste, uh, mm-hmm. semiotics, philosophy, animal production, crop production, uh, horticulture. So many all the aspects regarding food. 
then the well i had the opportunity to cook here and there so i also cook in italy in norway in switzerland uh, so a little bit all over europe uh, having the opportunity to learn and expand my knowledge and see different cultures and then after finishing the university uh, well, we had with uh, my friends that we are now doing the farm. We had the dream of being able to grow vegetables for people uh, anywhere in the world. And uh, we had this dream, you know, in Italy, eating, having wine with friends. We were like, oh, wouldn't it wouldn't be nice to have this uh, dream farm. Then we finished the university. We split up a little bit, but we kept really close uh, contact. And then after, in 2018, actually, uh, where my colleagues, Milo and Julia, the Dutch guys, uh, came back to the Netherlands and they, they wanted to continue working uh, outside. And they found the Stasgrunde board and they volunteered for one year. And then after one year volunteering this farm, the guy, the previous owner, decided to uh, moved to Berlin and then he actually was wondering if someone would like to continue with the project and uh, he asked them and immediately they asked us and without any hesitation we just you know dropped the mic and it's like <laughs> now we're going to be vegetable farmers in Amsterdam and this is how it is this is how it all started <gasps> that is such a beautiful like snapshot into into <laughs> your life. I mean, your passion has literally taken you all over the world and has built relationships that have kind of made a dream come true. I, I just think that's so amazing. Yes, wow. it's uh, now looking retrospective, every decision and everything that uh, we were doing, it was just taking us to be here right now. And mm. uh, But while you're in the way, you don't understand this now when you reach the point and you see backwards, you start saying like, huh, this is the reason why. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So you said that you discovered slow food in Colombia. And I think um, some people won't know what that means. Can you define it for me, please? Yes. So slow food is, uh, well, as the title said, this a slow food movement. It was born in uh, 1989. So it's actually a movement in which try to pro protect the tradition of food. You know, like why in different places of the world have certain traditions or certain products, for example. And then the idea, the ideology, all of this is to preserve these traditions and all this knowledge that nowadays, due to industrialization, um, modern society, and many other reasons, have been lost so so this is why they also create like the arc of taste so within countries you can see mm, that actually they put in catalogs specific products from specific countries that they just you can just find them over there also some recipes and some uh, you know mm, for example cheese or like yogurt with ashes or like uh, in italy is uh, the the great uh, the best example, sorry, because of the cheese, you know, it's like uh, Castelmagno cheese is from uh, north or like, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, this kind of specific, uh, let's say, like denomination of origin. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's to protect and to 
preserve the knowledge and the tradition of these products and the recipes. Okay, so kind of like uh, uh, getting back to basics, like before, you know, av avocados were available in Europe all year round because we're exactly. planting them back, right, okay. And why is that so important now, nowadays? Well, uh, at least in my humble opinion, it's just uh, people don't actually have the connection with food anymore. They just have the, we are blessed and spoiled at the same time in the sense of like, we just go to the supermarket and we don't think, we just go and get what we want. And then it's a blessing, but it's also like a kind of a course because then you don't see what is behind. You don't care and you don't actually wonder how many kilometers this um, food had to travel in order to be here or something that is uh, processed, like it flew, it, it was produced in one country, flew to another one, came back just because it's cheaper to be transformed in some other place. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this is actually the, the main reason why, like it's very important, the, the food, and the connection with food and where the food is coming, where is your food coming from? So it's interesting what you say because um, I see a certain movement for like sustainability and, you know, producing more locally and reducing the miles that food travels and that being a real benefit for the planet. Um, but in addition to that, what you were saying is like it would be a real benefit to us as individuals and as communities and as societies to better reconnect with with where our food comes from. Is that Am I picking up on that correctly? Definitely, definitely. For example, now the lockdown and the COVID, it was a really awakening, like a really shake for the societies. Like, you know, the majority of the borders were locked for a little bit and there were delays on imports, exports. So people realized like, oh, I really need to eat more like local and, uh, well, organic and seasonal because actually... Now, one of oh, one of the other factors is seasonality, you know, like people is really used to have everything all the time. And this is not how the world goes. It's like, you know, season, this is why seasons exist. Because like in spring, you have a lot of greens, uh, everything is blooming. Then in summer, you have, you know, the heat, so you have the freshness. And then in fall and in winter, you have shorter days and you have like the heavy stews and the comfort food in which you keep you warm and then mm. time of transition. And this is some, also something that I learned while being in Europe because I didn't experience summers or winters for 24 years. Mm, that's a really, really good point. So can you grow produce all year round in Colombia? Uh, yes, you can have this twice tomatoes because it's, it's summer all the time. So you can just put tomato. Of course, there is a winter and summer, but it's like rainy and not rainy. That's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Okay. So it wasn't until you came here that you first, you know, sort of confronted seasons okay. face to face and the difference. And did you find it? What was your first impression of, of how European culture deals with the seasonality? or perhaps doesn't deal with seasonality? Oh, well, that's continuing. actually interesting mm -hmm. question. You know, in I when I was in Italy, I experienced more connection to the season, you know, because of, of the 
dishes, you know, like there's something that you just eat in this specific time of the year. Mm. So like, for example, um, wild boar stew in Italy, you just eat it in fall with polenta. Mm. You don't want to eat that in summer. It's freaking heavy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, even though Italy is like the land of the, tom- the tomato, like you preserve them and you in summer when you have so much abundance, you're really already thinking, oh, we need to preserve this in order to be able to have at least like a passata or like, you know, uh, mm. tomato sauce too, in order to do like nice and rich mummy uh, dishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I move uh, here to the Netherlands, that is just about one and a half, almost two years ago. Uh, then I found that uh, here there is a cucumbers all year round and uh, tomatoes all year round and, mm. and this kind of things, you know, it's like for me it was very shocking that it's kind of nice but in the other hand seeing it from the perspective of like where the food coming from and how it's produced and uh, and also uh, uh, adding that now I grow food it just like it's it just doesn't fit in there is that piece of puzzle that doesn't fit in my puzzle because uh, first of all, like if you got tomatoes in f- February, first of all, they come from a greenhouse, heat it with conditions, and they taste like nothing. It's just red water in the shape of a tomato. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. While you try a tomato in after, like, you know, the peak of the season, that like July, June, when they have a, like a plant is growing slowly, naturally, and it gets the amount of uh, sunlight, then this tomato would be the best tomato you will ever have. In your life you know it's um it's actually I, I do that a lot with people that come to the farm they say like ah in march do you have tomatoes and it's like nope but come again in july and then i will let you try the tomatoes then you mm-hmm. won't go back to asking or buying tomatoes in february mm. it you just made me think of uh you kind of made me flash back to childhood and when i would um go to spain every summer with, with my, my mother would take me um and she had friends there and you know they would create these kind of like amazing feasts and us the brits would talk about like the tomatoes like oh my god spanish tomatoes it's just there's nothing else like it they're so amazing they're so tasty they don't taste like anything like at home and we kind of thought that it was just like i don't know some magic in the soil like there, there wasn't a click. I mean, okay, I, I can't speak for all of the adults that were present, but for me as like a 10 year old, you know, there was no click that, oh, maybe we're doing something wrong. Maybe we're not growing them correctly. Maybe, you know, the, the conditions of growing tomatoes in Scotland are not perfect. <laughs> and so we're going to produce imperfect tomatoes. And I think that kind of links into what you're saying about, exactly. you know, you know, it being a blessing and a curse, you know, the blessing is, well, we don't go hungry. And considering the fact that there are people in the world that do go hungry, it is a profound blessing. And yet we have no connection to to quality, even to taste, to um, that sense of like, oh, we deserve to eat well and we deserve to eat fresh. And the soil as well deserves that relationship with us so that it can regenerate every year. I mean, we've completely lost that i mean in the uk i mean i don't know if you've ever been but we'll be the first to tell you that we do not have a tradition of food and our culture is not built around a tradition of food and for that reason we do not produce nice dishes people do not come to the uk to eat (laughs) 
Yes, I heard. Unfortunately, I haven't been there yet, but I heard that uh, they, that you go there not for food. Yeah, I know. You have to take your own. <laughs> Arrive with a box of tomatoes. <laughs> so what do you think we then... I might be venturing into like a bit of philosophical territory here. Okay. But what impact do you think it has on a individual community and societal level to be in a country where we do not have this relationship with the earth? Do you, do you think it Im impacts us in any way apart from not having, you know, high quality food? Uh, definitely. I think, uh, well, you know, there is a lot of people always saying, ah, oh, let's try to change the world. I see it as a smaller dream, but everything thinking, everyone thinking together could be a bigger dream. You know, think as like, if you are, if you think that you're too small to change the world, you'll think as if you're sleeping in a room with one mosquito. It can really, really give you a bad time. Mm -hmm. And it's a mosquito. Mm. So it's basically people saying like, ah, oh, let's change the world. It's not, no, let's change your world, change my world, change his world. So with, that, with, with those changes, we actually create a bigger impact. Mm. Meaning that like, for example, if you really... I'm going to tell you an example with what I'm doing this 2020. So this 2020, I put as a resolution from the beginning of the year is that I don't eat things that come from outside Europe. Okay. And it's almost December and uh, I'm, I'm there. Congratulations. <laughs> wow. Like um, no crazy exotic fruits from my country because like okay mm -hmm. if I'm I'm here I miss them of course but I'm here mm. also take advantage of the thing that is here like one of the things that being a cook really gave me it's like to really interact with my surroundings see what is there like what my what is around me and what can actually offer me that is very delicious all the spots have something to offer um so this is actually well here apples are amazing like if you go and eat apples in South America, they are like not tasty. Yeah. We have we have many other fruits, but uh, apples and pears and berries. Oh my god! Like mm. blueberries, raspberries. Mm. It's like cherries. This kind of things we don't have over there. Mm. And here it's actually uh, possible and doable. And then if you really want to eat them through the whole year, well, you can just get uh, loads of them in, in when they're in season and preserve them. Jams. Yeah. So, uh, candied or you know this there's ways of doing it like just remember like to remind ourselves a little bit how our grandparents were doing it you know like mm. i want a little bit of jam uh now you have the opportunity to go to the supermarket and then there you go million jams yeah but if like you really want the one that like, you like or like give you bring you back to a specific moment there is nothing better than the one you did yourself. Absolutely. So I think uh, to go back all of this to what you asked me, it's like, yes, I think if you really start seeing a small changes within your persona, uh, you actually can create 
more impact as a personal uh, society and more uh, world. Uh, and how how do you see this impacting people? Like, what what is the slow food movement done for you? Has has it translated into other areas of your life? Has it changed the way that you think about things outside of the kitchen and off the farm? Well, definitely. Like, uh, for like, as in every movement, there are things that I share and things that I don't share. Mm-hmm. Um, things that I apply in my life that uh, is actually. Uh, you know, um, for example, the in the farm, like when we grow different things. Uh, right now, well, this year we grew more than 70 different vegetables. 17? No, 70. Seven, 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 zero. Seven, zero, 70. Yeah. yeah. On, on a space, how big? Half a football field. Half a football field and so 70 that, uh, different vegetables. That's uh, 0.4 hectares. Wow. That's amazing. And, uh, you know, what? Why we? the reason why we do this is actually because if you have, when, like, conventional farmers are doing one crop and they have a major pest or, like, a major issue, then the whole crop, get screwed. Yeah. While if you have many crops next to each other, one get affected, you still have seven, uh, 69. Mm, yeah. So this, in this way, you actually create um, like a backup plan or like resilience in the, in the way that you really are going, if you have a major issue, your whole operation is not going to be um, affected. Of course, one one bed, one crop, one yield. But if you have just three crops and one of it is affected, then you have bigger, major issues. But if you have 70 and one of it is like, okay, you know, you also put it in the, in the, in the budget of like the, Mm. the 10% that is always not going great. Mm. So in this aspect, it's just like, first of all, also because Supermarket just also tell you what you want to like. They they suggest you what you should buy. So this is why vegetables wise, at least uh, you always find the same ones. Mm, okay. Like for example, you we grow different kind of mustard greens, uh, uh, such as kind of of what mustard, mustard greens. Mustard greens, okay. So as uh, red giant. Um, uh, frills, purple frills, uh, tatsoi, and like different, different kind of Asian greens also. And these things, you cannot find them in the in the market fresh or anything. Mm. Like, mm. Or you find them preserved or pickled or something. Mm. But you cannot really find them in anywhere else. Just like in this kind of product, like ours in like a CSA or like uh, another regenerative agriculture farms in the Netherlands that sells directly to restaurants mm. and this is why you always would buy or would buy what you know because you don't know anything else because they just put you the carrot the cucumber the tomato the potato the garlic three more that's it yeah yeah so this is why with the stress Grunteburg growing so many different kind of vegetables what we actually do is encourage you 
to know that there is that is way more than just these ingredients. That these mm. there are actually a lot of possibilities, and if you don't know them, we introduce them to you. And then I really find comfort zones really dangerous. I don't like them um, because you know this, then you arrive to a monotony. Mm. And what we try to do is actually get you out of your comfort zone, giving you different kind of vegetables. So you need to put a little bit of effort. Uh, and we do the most difficult one that is growing it, harvesting clay, and we just give it to you. You just need to mm-hmm. do the easiest and the the best that is just cooking it and eat it and enjoy it. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it's like, um, and with this, we also give you recipes, links, we introduce you to the vegetables. So it's not like we just give you something and then like, yeah, good luck. So in this aspect, we in- try to encourage you and then also... As a, as a part of the educational uh, point of view or like the educational approach from the CSA. So actually, uh, we give different uh, vegetables that actually people, it's like, huh, i never seen this. I have no idea how to do. <laughs> we do and we give you recipes and in our newsletter, we introduce it to you. So uh, in that aspect, it's, 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 I really like this, uh, well, the, the Stasklunteborg and how we approach it because we're actually making the connection again with the people. Right. So let's talk about Stads Hunteboer. Yes, that was very difficult, even for me, more than 200 times. Stads Hunteboer. Yes. Stads Hunteboer. Oh, my God. Dutch. Am I right? Yeah. Stads that's Yes. So this is the, uh, the the half football field where you're growing 70 varieties of vegetables. And it's like, it's a community project, right? So it's with your, your former colleagues from the school in Italy when you had the dream of having a, a farm together, which I just think is amazing. Yes, and it's regenerative farming. So can you explain a little bit what, what that means? Because honestly, I don't know what that means, regenerative farming. So it's uh, regenerative farming is just not taking out from somewhere, but also bringing back, you know, it's like action reaction. So for example, if I will tell you with um, cabbages and beans. Okay. So a cabbage, let's say a pointy cabbage, grows and it demands, it needs a lot of nitrogen that is found in the soil to grow. It needs a lot of nitrogen. So it collects and it sucks all the nitrogen from the soil. Then once you take the, when you harvest it, then you will have an unbalanced equation of nitrogen in your soil. So, but normally what people do is like they just throw a lot of chemicals to, you know, balance your soil. But what we do is actually balance the soil with the next crop. So we find and we put a crop that is releasing nitrogen into the soil. Ah. What you do is you balance your soil. So you have a cabbage that takes nitrogen, then you have a bean that releases nitrogen, then you have a happy and balanced soil that is always working and getting and giving and getting and giving. It's circular. It's yes, circular exactly. farming. Oh, right. Okay. Why is that not the norm? Because, I mean, listen, don't get me wrong. It sounds like a lot of work, like chemistry and math and everything. But, it, I mean, it sounds like also extremely logical. Why is that not the, the, the norm? Mm, because I think conventional farming is just like 
it, it is a lot of work. Like, mm. do and we just do it in half a football field. Like, if you go into a bigger scale, it's it would be a little bit more difficult because I can I can also understand. Let, let's say if you are in the past and then a company comes and tells you, hey, look, you don't have to weed anymore. If you put all all of this stuff, then you kill all the weeds and you balance your soil with all the nutrients that are needed. Yeah. Let's pick that you're in the 70s and the 80s. It's like, ah, hell yeah, give me the chemicals. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, because we didn't have any data through time with the repercussions or with the side effects of these chemicals, now we're in the situation we are. Now we are seeing the consequences of the choices that we did 20, 30 years ago. And this is the time to make a change right now. Because probably in 20 or 30 years, it would be better than how it is right now. Because right now it's it's not the worst, but it's also not the best. Okay. So what's happening to the soil? The, the soil that has been traditionally farmed over the past couple of decades and has been supplemented with chemicals uh is the quality degrading are, are farmers kind of having some trouble with it are, are we experiencing any problem any problems ingesting that food oh well you know there is something that i watched the other day is that uh, for example there is some uh in some tribes in central south america that uh, they were eating specific uh, also in North America, that they were eating this specific uh, rat. rat? Like, r- like rat desert. Like literally like a rodent, like a rat. Oh, rats, right. <laughs> so, of course, you say like, ooh, ooh, horrible, I won't eat that. But then what they, the knowledge that they realize about this, like they eat a specific uh, herb that then it's in their body and they can synthesize it. And then yeah. if humans eat this, then it acts as a, it's the rat meat. It acts as a medicine for the human. Okay. Okay. So I'm just, all of this to tell you that if you put chemicals into your food, they would be the same, but the other way around, what be the yeah. best tool? So mm. you will be eating chemicals. Also with like, with the, the same way as when you grow and when you raise cattle in a really close environment. And then you put medicine and antibiotics for them to not get sick. Actually, this is what you eat. Plus the the conditions and the animal welfare and it's horrible. But mainly what you will eat is this uh, crap that they're putting, unfortunately, to them. Right, okay. And also, uh, well, now the Conventional agriculture is also makes very strange, uh, I don't know, steps. Like, for example, right now, a lot of people is plowing. Mm-hmm. You know, so season is over, winter break, plow everything. And it's just like, that's the worst mistake you can do. Because, <laughs> Why? <laughs> because first of all, like, uh, carbon is the... Uh, element that is most present in the atmosphere in the world basically Mm -hmm. and what the soil does is like 
sequestrate, like kidnap, keep uh, within the ground the carbon. And then when mm-hmm. you do that, what you do is actually saying all this carbon to the to the atmosphere. Oh my God, you're joking. No. <laughs> I had no idea. Hang on. So soil is also some kind of like carbon sink that is sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. And when you plow it, you're releasing that carbon into the atmosphere. Yes. Oh my god! It's like everywhere we turn, there's a disaster happening. <laughs> so if you see, if you see like a te- thermographic yeah. timeline of the of the of the world, yeah. you will see that now till spring, everyone is planning. So it's actually an increase in heat because all the carbon is being released. Oh my! I had. N- <sighs> yeah. Also, these are something. These are things that I also have learned in the near past. It's, yeah, like, it's, yeah. it's, it's also for me, it's very shocking. Like, and this is why uh, we are doing these kind of things. And for example, we not till our soil. What we do is actually, we harvest our plants, we compost a lot, and then we let the root systems of our plants decompose in the bed. So, actually, so this is this is a stads grundboer. Yes. Okay. So for example, um, I give you the example of the tomato bed that is in the greenhouse. So in in that we even put four crops in that bed. So the first one is uh, we put mustard greens. So we harvest them, then we mow them. We leave the roots so they decompose and being absorbed by the soil. So then we put actually kohlrabi. What? Cold rabi. This, um, I don't know, cold rabi. It's like this. Uh, I don't know what that is. It's um, kind of a radish, very, very crunchy, very sweet, very nice. Okay, I believe you. Um, you're, the, you're the expert. <laughs> so what we actually did is we put the cold rabi and then we let it grow, and then when it was almost ready to be harvested, we interplanted with tomatoes. So when the kohlrabi was ready to be harvested, the tomato was growing. And then when the, once the uh, kohlrabi was out, we put basil. Okay. So it was the tomato and the basil, and once the uh, tomato and the basil were gone, we put, again, mustard greens. So, like, one of the things that we learned the most in these two years almost of farming is that a healthy soil is a soil that is always making photosynthesis with plants. Right. Well, actually, it's the plant that makes the photosynthesis, but, you know, that is always mm-hmm. working along mm-hmm. with plants. Mm-hmm. So we have this really basic understanding. I mean, we, I mean, me, you know, maybe other people too, that spring, summer, autumn, winter, and winter is like the dead time for soil and maybe it needs time to breathe or rest or whatever kind of like personification I'm projecting onto it. But what you're saying is working with the seasons is actually about finding plants and vegetables to plant in that soil every season because the soil always needs to be working and generating and in symbiosis. Yes. Right? But uh, for example, the toughest time is now. It's uh, fall and winter because there are actually very little plants that grow right now. Mm. But what we do, for example, in the farm is that uh, we cover with compost, so we mulch the beds. 
Okay. So because having a bare uh, bed is the worst mistake ever because it just dries and, uh, you know, you lose the first layer that is the richest with the uh, microbes available. So we put a layer of compost and then we are doing actually different experiments to see which one is the best. And this is also why we like to have the a small farm because you can still have room for experiments. Mm. So we're putting in some beds a layer of compost and straw. Well, in all the beds, a layer of compost. But then it it the difference is in some beds, straw. In some beds, um, leaf from the... All the trees that are falling, you know, oh, the, leaf the, fallen leaves. the trees. Yeah, yeah. sorry, the fallen, the fallen leaf. Hmm. And this is why, uh, and why that? Because they have uh, indigenous microorganisms. So instead of like putting synthesized, you know, uh, nitrogen or like, no, you go for the source of your, like local source. So you just go to the forest, go with a rake, get some bags <laughs> and put in your beds. Wow. Plus, it's full of carbon. So all this, all this decomposing carbon, instead of going up, mm-hmm. it will go down. And now we also actually mulching with uh, the uh, waste of um, the, where material where they grow mushrooms. So it's uh, like pasteurized sawdust, straw, and coffee grounds. Okay. So they have a lot of uh, mycelium, and mycelium actually interacts and work in a perfect combination with plants. Mm. So basically, if I understood well, because I'm still wanting to understand this in a, for being able to explain it, is that plants actually create a lot of, uh, um, how is it? Create like food for microorganisms come and eat it. Okay. And then, well, no, that is, is difficult because then, like, there is release, release of sugars and then the fungi actually eat this and then what the fungi produce is actually energy for the plants. So it's actually a really nice relationship that it's not that this is explained and I'm still really <laughs> learning from it because I really don't want to give uh, any wrong information because it's, it's, sure. it's quite delicate. But I'm just realizing that they are, they work like there is a whole world down there that actually mm-hmm. we don't even know uh, what's going on. And just to understand that, it's I think it's it's very very important. I mean, it's like it's kind of so surprising. I think to to so many of us. Okay, and again, I say me again, but it's very logical as well because if you look at the world, I mean the world's forests everything grows on top of each other and with each other you know there's not like a part of the world that's just for mushrooms and then just for tomatoes and just for trees and whatever like all of these things um live in very very close quarters in the wild uh and so it makes sense that they would be helping each other i mean like the, the system that mother nature created for the world around us is impossibly perfect and I'm, I'm not sure where we ever deviated away from it. That's probably a different conversation. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it makes sense what you're saying. And it seems a shame that, that we did deviate, actually. So at Stad's Grunteboer, oh my God, how many times am I going to force myself to say that? <laughs> 
you're you're experimenting you're, with farming. You want to improve upon this regenerative farming. And who are you sending these seventy types of vegetables to? So actually, well, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and then it's a style of farming in which. Uh, basically, you share the risk with your members. So it's not that we don't sell vegetables. We actually sell memberships. So people become mm -hmm. a member of the farm. Mm -hmm. And then for a whole season of 30 to 32 weeks, depending on the year, you are a, you will get delivered uh, once a week vegetables um, to the city, or you can pick them at the farm. Mm. Okay, so, so people pay to have have fresh to be so members. And exactly. So this is why we chose this uh, model because people actually can decide. First of all, we have a scaling price. So we give you a range of price in which you can decide how much you would like to pay. This is because there is people that have a lot of uh, money and they can pay all of it. People that don't have a lot of income but still want to be part of it and then, for example, the people that pay the, the highest and people that pay the lowest, they meet in the middle. And then also the farmer gets uh, is, as gets a, a, at least a minimum wage. So every like the three points of the equation are happy because people that cannot pay much, but then still wanted to be part, they balance with the people that are actually paying more. And then the farmer that is in the middle making the work is actually uh, getting a, a proper uh Savage. Yeah. Uh, does it on, sorry, but does does that work? Have you found the that that system of you know yeah. people volunteer yeah? Yes, actually people we we thought, you know, there is this saying like oh Dutch love the best deal. But <laughs> people are uh, paying really the highest sometimes and we you know a lot of people were like ah don't do it like this because they're not going to pay and actually they're they are paying it. It's like how I can how can pay the minimum or like how I would not pay the maximum if I know my farmers, if I know the people that is every week working to supply me with local organic seasonal vegetables. Yeah. And this is also I think what this is the connection that we were speaking about at the beginning, no? It's like mm. at least you know who is growing your food, you already have a, a closer connection. Plus, we also do the working together days. So, for example, people, once a, once a season, people can come. And, um, and we have a big day in which all of us are working together. So, or harvesting, or preparing beds, or planting, or transplanting. And then this is a very, very special moment because people feel, first of all, that they are getting their hands into the soil that is one of the basics that we really need to get back and second of all and for me one of the most important they will know that what they are doing is going to come back in their uh, package packages of, of vegetables within a couple of months mm. so while if they harvest uh, potatoes or they transplant or plant garlic they know that the garlic that they will eat is the one they did Mm. So this is something that is actually magical, and uh, for people in the city, this is an opp a unique opportunity to have this and to say that hey, I I was part of this, and you know I'm actually in actively involved. I'm just not like 
supporting uh, with money. I'm also mm -hmm. being there and I volunteer and then I go and put my hands and know my farmer and know my the land and you know. Absolutely. But also, another reason why we chose this uh, this model is because uh, people pay in advance, so the majority of the investments don't come directly from the farmer's pocket. Okay. So people, let's say our season starts in April or May, depending also on the year. People start paying in February. So mm. February we can start buying seeds, the uh, potting soil, the different tools that we would need through the season. So the benefits of this model is like when you, well, actually when the farm during the season, if we have a great year, Uh, you will have surplus and the surplus will be also going for the for the members so then if it's a good year the members would have more in the other hand it's also if there is some fails uh, you will have less for example this year i can tell you what because it just happened last week we put the brussels sprouts and the brussels sprouts unfortunately were a big fail and people now it's like brussels sprout season and we just got them a little bit while last year we they had <laughs> lots of them but then you know it's like this one year you have good thing when the next year probably is not and people understand that also we are really open and honest with our communication we are very transparent and this is what uh, what we like and what we want actually to be part of the community and that the community it's just go all together i think it's a really fantastic initiative and i think um you know paying a membership to support people that are you know community focused and trying to invest in a kind of farming that will last forever for everyone um being able to come and be a part of the process and get your hands dirty and learn about that and having access to like world-class chefs as well that are gonna you know suggest recipes for you to do with each box i mean what a fucking cracking deal sorry but <laughs> <laughs> it's like why would you go to the supermarket it just yeah, seems like it, such an, an awesome thing exactly that how is um the i mean you're producing 70 vegetables so you're obviously doing brilliantly but like how is the dutch climate for for farming Uh, well, you know, last year I was, <laughs> I was whining a lot. <laughs> This year I embrace it. And then the, I just changed my mentality instead of complaining. I just saw it in a different perspective. Mm. There is not what, there is not bad weather. There is unprepared people. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> there is no bad weather. There is only unprepared people. Or unprepared just, beer, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, mm -hmm. so, but yeah, it's tough. It's still tough. Uh, yeah. But for example, something that I would like to share with you is like, we don't have, we have greenhouses, but we don't have technological greenhouses. So our greenhouse just hit up with sun. Oh, okay. okay. This year we did an experiment and we did our uh, curry paquet. Mm -hmm. So we grew lemongrass, turmeric, ginger, and Thai basil in the farm to give a local curry package to our members. Amazing. 
So this is also also to show that you, even though we are here and uh, we have crazy conditions and summer is not that hot, you can still grow these kind of things. So I think it's. Work. It's a great marketing message that, you know, you're not restricting people to the Dutch diet because Dutch food is. <laughs> yes, I, I can. I can see that. But like, for example, even even in my house, like I have uh, lemongrass in pots. Hmm. Uh, I have turmeric in pots. I have ginger in pots. So they grow. They grow well. Like in, in winter, they have to be inside. In summer, they are, they are outside. Hmm. Probably not a gigantic yield but uh, once you try fresh of these ingredients you cannot go back to dry ones i uh i would completely agree with you on that and that actually leads us nicely into roots rice and beans thinking of things in, in pots and jars can you tell me more about that uh well yes so roots rice and beans um the whole project started um last year uh, I was doing dinners and pop-ups uh, in order to try to engage more uh, people and pass a message through the food and a dinner experience. But it was it was working really well because people really wanted to eat and support the cause, but uh, people didn't actually wanted to hear a story when you're having dinner and uh, having drinks with your friends. So it's actually started last year. Then due to Corona, it had to change the whole perspective Perspective because there were no restaurants, there were no dinners, no gatherings, no nothing. So I just saw that, um, well, I couldn't do anything. And I saw that uh, my colleague farmers, where we are located, they were having the issues getting rid of uh, their products because they actually... Uh, are focused into uh, horeca so they mainly sell to restaurants or to yeah to restaurants mm. due to the lockdown they found themselves with a lot of surplus that they couldn't sell and uh, you cannot switch your business from uh, b2b to b2c like that because people know the restaurant people don't know the farmer yeah yeah also one of the reasons why we also choose the csa model uh, and so I saw that uh, my colleague farmers were having uh, issue getting, like selling their, their, their produce, their surplus. I decided to take action. So basically what I did is I started collaborating with them, uh, asking them if I could buy the things that they couldn't sell in order for them to have the economical uh, you know, continuity in order to be able to continue what they love to do mm -hmm. and uh, so and I can do what I love to do that is also cooking mm. so all of this started actually because of uh, one mushroom producer so she was uh, producing uh, oyster mushrooms and the shelf life of a mushroom is actually very short Okay. Uh, so actually what I decided to do is get all the production that she was, that she made and transform it into um, oyster mushroom bolognese. Well, uh, mm. most oyster mushroom ragu. Mm -hmm. all, all the time that I spend in Italy. <laughs> and uh, it just basically started like that, out, out of wanting to preserve and help people. No business mm. plan, no, uh, 
structure whatsoever, like not even knowing to whom I was going to sell the jars. Yeah. Uh, and then, well, it just continued that she had certain amount of motions per month, and I just decided to buy everything of that month. And then at a certain point, my house was full of jars. <laughs> uh, but I didn't care, you know, I did it not for the sake of like, okay, now I'm going to start selling this. I just didn't want all the food that she produced with love to be wasted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then like this, uh, also I started collaborating with other farmers around me and, uh, and now there is even more farmers calling me that uh, now the, the voice is spreading that there is one yeah. Colombian <laughs> dude buying things from farmers at a fair price. Because one of the things that I really care because myself, I'm a farmer, is that I pay a fair price to, to the farmer because I yeah. saw that there is quite some people that want to take advantage just because they see like the, uh, that they cannot sell stuff easily. So they just go and they say, okay, this costs 90 euros. I give you three years for it, for it, but I buy it all. And, uh, this is not what we want. Uh, yeah. So we speak with the farmer. We arrive into a, in a price in which he can cover his cost and also earn some money. We buy the ingredients and we, after that from then we do our investments and then we transform food and we bring it uh, to our kitchen that we rent and then the, we sell it in different shops. And uh, right now we have um, five products and uh, we are in the 17 different shops around the city. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yes, so... <laughs> Uh, people have been accepting the the products really well. Of mm -hmm. course, uh, thanks to my background in cooking and in my passion, what I do, I put a lot of uh, effort, energy, and love in this. Mm. And just for the record, uh, it's not that I just decided at my home, oh, I'm going to do jars and then sell it in the supermarket or like in mm. the market. I did this uh, professionally in one farm in Italy in which mm -hmm. I was the head uh, like the manager and the head transformer of the operation and I was doing this professional for almost two years so I know oh, wow. how is the process of you know sterilization pasteurization pH conservation of food uh, so all the regulations and all the HACCP controls in order to be able to do this now so it's not that I just started to I tell you because there is a lot of people that actually wonder this, like, you know, mm. I know I, I, it's something I actually really love about the, your story and the story of your colleagues as well. This thread of expertise that is underpinning the passion. So passion gets you up and gets you going. Um, and I think how much love you inject into your work is also reflected in, in the success, you know, that, that people want to be a part of it and people want to buy your products and, and support you. But also the fact that, you know, you have all of this training and expertise and knowledge that makes it such a good investment for, well, I mean, for the people around you. Um, and it really sort of sets you apart 
I think. Um, but when we think of sort of, God, am I going to say this? When we think of city farms and, and local projects like this, um, I have to say I, I really didn't expect it to be run by um, by people with so much experience behind them on a mathematical, chemical, microbiological level. Um, and it, it, it's really quite inspiring and really quite, you know, Shocking. Yeah, that's it's it happens. It happens, you know, like uh, when people think like, oh, well, you're a farmer. They immediately think because uh, you didn't have a choice, because you didn't, you couldn't go to school. You know, there are so many reasons why actually people think you do this. Mm. But in our case, no, actually, we decide to do it and we prepare ourselves so good in a level of expertise yeah. that we're actually choosing going back this path because not everyone is willing to you know we don't do this for the money because if you really wanted to do it for the money we just go as a i don't know digital whatever programming person yeah yeah we do it because we really believe that there is the in the basics there is the most one of the most important things you know it's a so we prepared ourselves so much and did all of these studies and uh, learned in through our you know path in life to reach this point in which now we can actually have the knowledge and all the degrees to come and speak with you to you mm. about hey we need to do a change and it's actually not just because we're a bunch of hippies we actually mm. have all the study and the knowledge and we need to start now yeah it's such an amazing message um and i really hope people listen to this and realize that i mean if you're in the netherlands it's happening on your doorstep and undoubtedly there are communities and people doing this all around the world um i think we're seeing a real movements as you say movements for for slow living for slow food for slow fashion these kinds of things um because as you say the the change is now the change needs to happen now and it's just fantastic what you're doing and fantastic how the community has s supported you and invested in, in Stad Boer one last time, <laughs> Stad Boer <laughs> yes. and roots, rice and beans. So congratulations, Andre. I think it's, I think it's amazing. No, uh, of course. And then one last thing that I would like to mm -hmm. share with you, it's about we focus uh, in circularity. Mm -hmm. So as we spoke before, it's just not taking from the soil, but also bringing back. Uh, I transformed my products in the uh, community kitchen that is called Kitchen Republic. Mm -hmm. And over there is a nice startup kitchen in which you can just pay a membership fee. And then you have your own space with all the controls and everything to be able to do, to like put your dream tangible, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And then one thing that actually I am doing since a couple of months, it's uh, unfortunately there was not the, in the Netherlands, there is not much the um, action of recycling the organic waste. You have the right. plastic, you have the uh, cardboard, uh, you have the you know paper, and then you mm -hmm. have fall. So in a kitchen in which there is 35 companies, uh, unfortunately, they were not um, 
recycling the organic waste. Right. And since uh, two months now, we started collecting all the organic waste. And uh, at the beginning, they were we, we started the project three companies, and now we are more than 17. Wow. And in the last two months, we have brought more than 2.2 tons of organic waste that instead of going to the dumpster to be burned or something, they are brought to the farm to be composted, to be used for next season compost in our beds in the farm. That is wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful. I mean, I think what you're proving is that win-win situations can exist in this world. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) We just need to think circularly. Um, Because obviously organic waste that goes to dumpsters and landfills, I mean, that just ends up releasing methane into the atmosphere, which is an absolute disaster for, for climate change. So, God, another initiative from you guys. How amazing. So it's just like in in that uh, aspect, we just feel like, you know, bridges because they wanted to do it, but they just didn't know how to. Now, also in the kitchen, I'm the first farmer going there. So now they have a spot in which they can do these kind of things, you know? Yeah. And also like with different things now, for example, we try to do holistic knowledge uh, on how to control pests. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the uh, slugs are a big problem in the Netherlands. It's quite wet and it's paradise. It's heaven for them. Yeah. So what we are doing and we realize is that uh, there is the Netherlands and Amsterdam is a really hip place for coffee roasters. Uh-huh. So what we are doing is actually is getting all the... Um, coffee chaff so the byproduct of after the roasting that is like the husk yeah and it's full of nitrogen first of all and second of all it's helps so much against the slugs slugs don't, mm. they don't like it so if you put it on your bed while you while you have uh, let's say cauliflower so mm-hmm. cauliflower is one of those plants that actually needs nitrogen so you put it and then you're basically giving nitrogen to your plant and also you are fighting against slugs because slugs they don't like the caffeine both in the mm-hmm. like remaining caffeine in there so you know trying to uh, come with natural solutions from the garbage of other people you know like all the byproducts yeah. from others so this also also why this as you said to us uh, to me before that all of this knowledge that we have is important because uh, people would just like, okay, throw this coffee husk, uh, coffee chaff away because, you know, and actually we are taking it and giving it that really useful uh, use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, you know, plus collaborating with other um, uh, coffee places. So also we take all the organic uh, all the coffee grounds and we also put it in the compost. So it's a lot of collaborations uh, because fortunately there is uh, now a changing of mindset uh, in yeah. the city that, uh, but there was not many. Uh, the change is there, but there was not many people taking action. You know, there was the thought mm-hmm. of like, okay, let's do it, but we don't know how. And this is when we arrive and we tell you, this is how. And we yeah. work together. 
Amazing. What a fantastic message to end on. This is how we do it and we'll help you do it. You've really created a, a network of a sort of symbiotic collective in one of the major sort of hubs of technology and innovation in the world. This is also, I think it's quite funny about it. And when people think of Amsterdam, they tend to think of what's going on digitally, uh, what's going on in the tech industries. And yet here you guys are having created this network of regenerative farming and collectivism and growing a whole new way of living from the ground up. Uh, and I really congratulate you guys for that. It's it's an amazing thing. And I'm so grateful to have been able to speak to you today. No, thank you. And I really hope that uh, this uh, can expand and more people get into this mindset because this should be the future. I absolutely agree with you. Before we end, is there anybody that you would like to platform? Yes, it's uh, my good friend Edwin Sander from The Morning Breakfast. From the what, sorry? The Morning Breakfast. From The Morning Breakfast. Yeah. Okay. Or, uh, the Morning. is like, he's a really, really nice guy and he's really also doing a connection about your, your food and your uh, spirituality and, you know, like the grounds of 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 how it should be okay amazing thank you so much for that suggestion Andres. well i have learned so much i can't even tell you you you've given me so much to think about i will put links to roots rice and beans and stads in the in the show notes so that people can find you um and is there anything else you you would like to say to people listening just as we end up um, yes, uh, well, in these tough times, let's uh, keep it together. Let's, uh, you know, help each other and smile more. That's it. <laughs> what a beautiful message. Thank you so much, Andres. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me here today. Hey, folks, if you want to support Stads Juntebur, uh, Roots Rice and Beans, or even Kitchen Republic, and you're in the Netherlands, please don't hesitate to get involved and, you know, buy these produce and support these local farmers. But even if you're not based in the Netherlands, it's really, really helpful if you share, you know, this show and the websites of these um, producers, because if we can connect them with other people that are doing similar things in other countries, you know, across borders, then that is also really, really helpful for increasing sort of the, the, the speed and the intensity of this movement, which, I mean, if you just listen to that podcast, you know, now more than ever is absolutely crucial. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, this one, Platform Enterprise, please do not hesitate to give us five stars, leave a comment, uh, whatever platform it is that you're listening on or engaging on. It really helps us with the rankings on iTunes and Spotify and all that jazz, which really helps us, you know, spread the message of these amazing people that I am so fortunate to, to speak with every week. You can follow the show at Platform Enterprise. That's the handle on Instagram, Facebook, uh, probably other platforms that I can't think of off the top of my head right now. So yeah, stay connected, stay in touch, get involved. Thanks so much for listening as ever, everybody. See you next time.